This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. Today, we are on question 55-0. I'm glad you're listening today because today is a very special day. For one, we're releasing this episode a little bit early, a couple days early. And for two, we're releasing two episodes today. This episode is a normal 365 where we're looking at a question from the Bible. But I'm also doing a second episode, a special, simply called Christmas Legends, where we'll be looking at traditions about Christmas that aren't necessarily based in the biblical text. So that episode is being released in conjunction on the podcast right after this episode. So go to your feed, listen to Christmas Legends. Actually, if you have the opportunity, stop now, listen to Christmas Legends first, and then come back to this one. Because the way it ended up being recorded, I think this one makes for a better ending than the other one, Christmas Legends. So there you have it, Christmas special on display. A little bit messy, but so it goes. Here at 365 Honest Questions About the Bible, what we do is we look at questions that come out of my reading of the Old and New Testaments, and then we dissect them and we compare them to our lives and see if there's any cognitive dissonance between what we actually believe and what the Bible seems to be presenting. Now, the tricky part of this show and kind of the linchpin of why I'm doing it is because we try not to answer those questions. We leave you in the lurch. We just put the questions out there and let you simmer in them. Today's a little different in that regard as I have a couple theories actually about, you know, what the answer to today's question means for me. But I'm not saying that necessarily as a universal. Anyway, the question today is specifically, what happened at the Nativity? Again, that's what happened at the Nativity. Here we go. Set your earballs for question dissection, because here we go. I just finished reading a really brilliant book. It's a book of essays by kind of popular writer Chuck Klosterman. And I had the luxury, actually, of listening to the audiobook version of the book, which is read by Mr. Klosterman himself. And the book is called I Wear the Black Hat. And it's kind of an analysis of villains, and tries to kind of get down to why are we, as a society, attracted to fictional villains? You know, the Joker is a more interesting character than Batman. Well, and Batman's pretty interesting. Maybe Lex Luthor is more interesting than Superman, because Superman's the boringest of all superheroes, of course, because he's perfect, right? Anyway, that's a different subject. But Chuck Klosterman has this thesis statement that he keeps repeating over and over again, and essentially tries to convince us of... And I was completely won over by this statement. It just feels right to me. It feels to me just intuitively like he nailed it. His thesis statement is this. The villain is the guy in the room who knows the most but cares the least. Right? So the guy who has accumulated the most power and has the most freedom to actually do something and control events but cares the least for other people. You only need to look at any of the bad Roman emperors to really be able to see how this villain idea plays out. A 20th century example of this might be someone like Joseph Stalin, right? Who has all of the Soviet Union under his control, and yet he has pretty much zero sympathy for his own people, where he lets thousands upon thousands of people starve to death, he brutally murders others 
has concentration camps, you know, is generally responsible for something like 50 million people dying. And he never seemed to, to care at all. This makes him a villain. Now, if you accept that premise, that the villain is the person in the room who knows the most but cares the least, then doesn't it also stand to reason that a protagonist, the hero, would have to be the opposite of that? If that's true, and I generally think it is, that the hero must be the opposite of the villain in character traits, then we would define the hero as the person in the room who knows the least but cares the most. Using that example, then, if we turn this idea of villains and heroes with those definitions to the Bible and to God, it puts God in kind of an interesting place, right? Because how can God, being the creator of everything, the guy who is absolutely omniscient, who knows the answer to every question, how could he ever be in a place where he would be the hero? It would seem by his own nature that the only role available for God is to be a villain, right? Because no matter what, he's the guy in the room that knows the most. You see, today we're doing episode 50. We've asked 50 questions of God and looked at 50 different complex questions that have risen out of reading the Bible. And trust me, we have plenty more. We're not nearly done. We've barely scratched the surface of what there is to cover. But one of our huge themes, one of the repeating quandaries, especially for me personally, is is, you know, partially the problem of evil, but maybe even bigger than that is, for a God who is infinite, who can do all things, why did he choose this story? Why did he choose this way to make the world work? Right? A sacrificial system? Even the idea of sin. Why did God create a world in which there was such a thing as sin? I believe those are all relevant and valid questions. But that being said, it is undeniably fascinating to look at this hero and villain definition in light of those big questions. Because maybe this system is all in place so that God could find a way to become the hero, despite his nature. What do I mean by that? We see with Jesus being born, Jesus, the person who's going to set us free, who's going to be our savior, the Messiah, our Christ... We see God somehow becoming the hero, becoming the person in the room, or in this case, the manger, who knows the least but will ultimately care the most. God has somehow put aside his deity, considered himself nothing, to become the hero by limiting himself and entering the game in a very vulnerable position, perhaps the most vulnerable. Now, all that being said, sorry, this is kind of a long prologue today. All that being said, my thesis statement for this own episode, looking at the question of what happened at the Nativity, is that Christmas, much like the season of Advent leading up to it, is still all about expectation and about what is to come. I was doing research kind of simultaneously for this episode and the Christmas Legends episode. I found myself really struggling doing the Christmas Legends episode because I quickly found myself falling into a quandary. In looking at the origins of all these different Christmas legends of mistletoe, of stockings, of St. Nicholas, when you do that, you kind of look behind the curtain. You kind of see backstage of Disneyland, which is a horrible thing to do. If you're ever at Disneyland and someone has a pass to go, like, backstage to see behind It's a Small World and behind all of the magic of Disneyland, don't do it. It's a buzzkill. <laughs> Similarly, I have my degree in filmmaking and have worked on some small films, and have had the opportunity to see behind the movie magic. And it's it's no fun, right? <laughs> I, 
I don't like to know that stuff. It takes away from the beauty of the final product. I am kind of a believer in gestalt theory, that the whole is bigger than the sum of its parts. The problem with that being that if you happen to go backstage and you look at just the parts, the whole, the final product, is suddenly eviscerated. And now you only see the small parts, and so you don't have the magic of the whole anymore. Alright, enough with that philosophy, but back to the Christmas legends thing. I found myself deconstructing Christmas and Christmas traditions, and worrying that I was losing the Christmas magic because of that. And we're releasing that episode in the Christmas season, and I wanted to express Christmas cheer, not be like a cynical, like, Well, St. Nicholas came out of Turkey... And he was this guy that dropped stuff into poor people's fireplaces, and that's no fun. And yet, there's a problem of so many of our Christmas traditions come from pagan religious celebrations. Mistletoe, for instance, literally should be translated as poop twig. We kiss under a poop twig. And so, in doing the episode, I tried to synthesize it by saying, the through line of Christmas is peace on earth, goodwill to men. Of course, by saying that, I've just taken the gospel out of the Christmas story, right? I took Jesus out of it. Yes, yes, let's all sing Kumbaya together. And still, right now, I'm recording this episode after I've already finished the Christmas Legends thing. I feel a little bit of guilt about de-Jesus-izing the Christmas spirit. But now, as I'm hopefully about to show you, to a certain extent, maybe I was actually right. Because Jesus, as a child hasn't accomplished anything yet, right? God is man, but God is a whiny, sniveling baby. He's not doing the work of the cross yet. The gospel message, or the impact of the gospel, hasn't yet arrived. And in order to move on with this episode, I need to leave that there for now, but we'll get back to that idea at the end of the podcast. For now, going forward, I want to do two things. I want to, one, look at what the Bible actually says about the birth of Jesus, and two, discuss what was actually accomplished at Jesus' birth. Okay, and in doing that, let's start with the picture you have of the nativity. If you're like me, maybe you grew up in a household where your mother put up like a thousand different versions of the nativity around the house with little figurines everywhere. If so, then you can easily picture the nativity. But even if you're not from a Christian tradition, you've probably seen the nativity played out in Christmas lights or driving by your local churches or somewhere. But try to picture it right now. Okay, what do you see? Most likely you see a very simplistic barn-looking situation. And inside that barn you have Mary who for whatever reason, seems to always be depicted in blue. Joseph, who's probably more dressed in brownish colors. And then a X-shaped manger that a little baby Jesus is lying in. But of course, that's not all. (laughs) Above the manger, you've got the star, a big old star shining down on him. Around the manger, you have a litany of animals. And besides Mary and Joseph, you have several shepherds and you have the three kings each of them holding one of the three presents noted in the Bible, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Often on these nativity scenes, you also see an angel above the barn. Oh, and the three kings, the three wise men, always are on camels. That just seems to be what they're on. Historically, too, historically as well, if you're really into the nativity, you would have named these three kings Balthazar, Melchior, and Casper. 
with one of the three kings being a sub-Saharan African, so dark-skinned, and the other two being white or tannish color. Very precise imagery. <laughs> um, and then the other animals, there's always donkeys, sheep, cows, often birds around. And because we're not going to have a chance to talk about animals later, for obvious reasons that we'll get into, one of my favorite Christmas songs, which I thought until I did this research that Sufjan Stevens wrote it and created it, but apparently it's an old Christmas carol, is called The Friendly Beasts. And what I love about it is it has an innocence attached to it, as well as a holiness and a sense of vulnerability as well. I'll just read the lyrics to the song The Friendly Beasts. Jesus, our brother, kind and good, was humbly born in a stable rude, and the friendly beasts around him stood, Jesus, our brother, kind and good. I, said the donkey, shaggy and brown, I carried his mother up hill and down. I carried her safely to Bethlehem town. I, said the donkey, shaggy and brown. I, said the cow, all white and red. I gave him my manger for a bed. I gave him my hay to pillow his head. I, said the cow, all white and red. I, said the sheep with curly horn. I gave him my wool for his blanket warm. He wore my coat on Christmas morn. I, said the sheep with curly horn. I, said the dove from the rafters high, cooed him to sleep that he should not cry. We cooed him to sleep, my mate and I. I, said the dove from the rafters high. I, said the camel, yellow and black, over the desert upon my back. I brought him a gift in the wise men's pack. I, said the camel, yellow and black. Thus, every beast by some good spell, in the stable dark was glad to tell, of the gift he gave Emmanuel. Of the gift he gave Emmanuel. Oh, I love it. I love it. It, it. it brings home the same emotion that's sometimes in renditions of Little Drummer Boy. And it's this idea that I'm so weak, I'm so desperate, and I have almost nothing. But what I have, I'm going to give, and I'm going to give it joyously. This idea of this little drummer boy who's an orphan child who has nothing still comes to Jesus, and he, he doesn't know what to do, so he's going to play his drum. Music he can give. Man, I want to be like that. I want to... I want to be like these animals, and I'm an animal lover anyway, so it delights my soul to think that God incorporated the animal kingdom into the most important story uh, God's ever told. Oh, I can't resist, too. I have to mention, and I, I don't remember the name of this song, but I grew up singing this song that my parents played that was told from a donkey's perspective, and man, I'm such a sucker for donkey stories. Donkeys are just special little creatures. <laughs> but it's this donkey who is singing, I'm not beautiful, I'm not beautiful. <laughs> Just this sad, depressed, low self-esteem donkey. But then he gets to be the donkey that Mary rides to Bethlehem. And then the last verse of the song, he's like, Now I'm beautiful, I'm so beautiful. Because he got this honored job of carrying Mary, the mother of God, to Bethlehem. Anyway, uh, whew. Animals, man. Gotta love them. But that's the end of the animal conversation because, believe it or not, there are no animals discussed at the nativity in the Bible. Wow, wow. Zero zilch. No camels, no donkeys, no cows. We can infer them, possibly, and we'll see that in a moment, but they are not specifically stated to have been there. We don't even know that Mary rode on a donkey to Bethlehem. Maybe that donkey is still sad and has low self-esteem because he didn't actually take Mary. 
We don't know. So now let's look at what the Bible says about the birth of Jesus Christ. First and foremost here, it's cool and fun that we have four Gospels. We have four narratives of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And often, and often, and I fall into this too from time to time, we tend to take a a skeptical look at the four books, a Rashomon-esque look, right? If you're familiar with the movie Rashomon, it was a 1950s Japanese movie by famed Japanese director Akira Kurosawa. And essentially, Rashomon tells one story, but it tells it from, I believe, four different perspectives. And each perspective has its own self-interest involved. So by the end of it, you're, you're kind of just at a loss and you feel like you can't get to the truth of what actually happened at all. Because every personal self-witness story seems to contradict one another. And there are seeming contradictions, or at least differences between the stories of Jesus's birth between the Gospels. But personally, I think rather than that causing a lot of conflict, which honestly, it does cause conflict or cognitive dissonance in my soul in other passages of the Bible, but less so here. To me, it shows a more well-rounded three-dimensional narrative story, and you can see the different self-interests and the different perspectives that the Gospel writers are trying to express. So let's go through them. First, we have Mark. Mark is the first Gospel written on the scene, and it's the action gospel. Boom, boom, boom. Stuff happens. So Mark's looking at this and he's like, eh, birth of Jesus. What did Jesus do when he was born? He cried. He cried. When did the work of the gospel take place? Not until Jesus is 30 years old. So I'm going to start with a crazy cool quote of the Old Testament and then bam, Jesus is 30 years old. Let's catch up with the story right then. That's how Mark goes. So we have no genealogy, no story of how Jesus was born and the very first gospel that was ever written. The last gospel that was ever written, the Gospel of John, also doesn't really touch on Jesus' birth. John's very poetic, so he kind of encapsulates maybe the birth story into more or less an opening poem, a preamble to his text. But John really focuses in on the last 12 hours or so of Jesus' life, and a full half of John's gospel is strictly looking at Jesus' trial, death, and resurrection. So he doesn't have a lot of time. He really is just trying to get to that death and resurrection scene. So he too, for the most part, skips the birth narrative. That leaves us with Matthew and Luke. As a whole, Matthew and Luke are writing to different audiences. Matthew is most assuredly writing to the Jewish people. And this is true from the very get-go. Matthew starts his book, his gospel, with a long, boring genealogy. Now, if you're a Roman reading this scroll in the first century, you don't care about the genealogy. Why would you? You don't care who Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great ancestors are. Unless maybe somehow that goes back to Zeus. But it doesn't, so why would you care? I don't know if you would. Luke's gospel, on the other hand, is a much more detail-oriented gospel. And it often tends to focus on players in the story that are marginalized. Luke himself was a doctor, and he was commissioned by this guy Theophilus to write the gospel. So he's trying to inform specifically this Greek-named guy, Theophilus, of what happened with Jesus. So he's going to pay close attention to detail most of the time and also really give us interesting perspectives from people maybe you wouldn't expect to speak up. We'll see that in a moment. But looking at Matthew here, I was kind of blown away because Matthew's nativity story, I think, walks down the line of three leadership spheres. So even though the story, for all intents and purposes, starts with a virgin 
conception, right? Mary, who hasn't had sex with Joseph, is preggers with Jesus. Matthew doesn't spend time with Mary, but he focuses on Joseph. So he first starts with the head of the household of Jesus' family, Joseph. Four times in just a chapter and a half, Matthew talks about Joseph having dreams wherein an angel of the Lord tells Joseph what to do. It is interesting to note that Matthew doesn't record any of Joseph's words, but nonetheless, he is much more of a central figure in Matthew's narrative than I think Mary is. So we have this opening scene where Mary's impregnated, Joseph is thinking he's going to divorce her secretly, but then he's told by the angel of the Lord that no, the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary, the son's going to be named Jesus, and he's going to save the people from their sins. After that, the narrative jumps to Herod. Herod was called the king of the Jews, and he quite literally was. This time period, roughly 6 to 4 BC, or BCE, Israel, Judea, it's it's kind of still an autonomous region. There's been lots of warfare, and there's a ton of complicated history that happened in the last hundred years. But it's not until the reign of Tiberius, which is going to come just after Caesar Augustus dies, that Israel, Judea is officially incorporated into the Roman Empire. So right now, Herod really is the big man on the scene. And from everything we know about Herod, he was pretty brutal and crazy from the get-go. He murdered three of his own sons. Various historians, including Josephus, talk about a lot of the weird, paranoid things he did. So Herod's in his kingdom when all of a sudden these wise men show up. Now the interesting thing about the wise men, they are never stated as being kings. So Christmas Carol, We Three Kings seems to be making some assumptions there. They're never spoken of as using camels or anything like that. But they do come because they see a star. So they talk to Herod. Herod says, go find this guy that you believe because of scripture is going to be a king. And the wise men go. And Matthew says they find Joseph, Mary, and Jesus in a home in Bethlehem. Not in a manger. They then give Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then decide rather than meeting back up with Herod, they're going to find another way back to their homeland. Which is stated that it's in the east somewhere. This is all we ever get about the three wise men. But it's interesting now. Matthew's story has started with the head of the household, now moving to the head of the country, and these other heads of state, maybe, these wise men. And then the next section, I think, goes to a head of the world, or a, or perhaps a spiritual enemy, though it's never directly stated. But hear me out here. So I'm going to start reading in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. After that, an angel appears to Joseph again, says, You can go back home. Joseph, Mary, and baby then don't end up going back to Bethlehem, but they go to Nazareth. Now, a few points about what we just read. My suspicion is that Matthew's telling the story by starting with 
the head of the household, then moving to the head of the country, then moving to Satan's influence or Satan's attempts to stymie God's story. Because we have a sudden influx of peril into the situation. This decree by Herod of murdering children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region is interesting for a couple points. Reason number one is he kills all children two or under. That gives us a wide time span here. And it's the primary reason, I think, that we can be pretty sure that the wise men didn't show up when Jesus was still in a manger. The wise men maybe come to Jesus when he's a year old, maybe even up to two years old, because Herod is unsure of when this Jesus figure was already born. That's why he kills babies all the way up to two years old. Going back to our image of nativity on the night of Jesus' birth, we can take away the wise men on camels, an unknown number of them, by the way, there could have been more than three. <laughs> maybe maybe the fourth wise man forgot to bring a gift. Uh, and secondly, this killing of infant boys is interesting because it's not stated anywhere else by any other historian. Luke's gospel doesn't mention anything of this, nor does Josephus, who is a Jewish historian during the first century. If this was a big deal, you would think that someone like Josephus would have written it down. Now, Bible historians and commentators widely vary about how many babies Herod killed. I read numbers that said up to 40,000, which sounds kind of ridiculous to me. I'm more of the ilk to believe that Bethlehem had around 300 people in it, most likely. So that would probably mean the number of boys ages 0 to 2 was somewhere in the ballpark of 7 to 10. And if the number's that small, then it wouldn't really be worth noting in histories. If you're Josephus and you're talking about, and then Herod did this horrible thing, and then he did this horrible thing. Killing eight little baby boys is not a big deal. Anywho, it's worth noting that there's no pilgrimage in Matthew's Gospel of Mary and Joseph traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's something we're going to see right away in Luke. Doesn't happen in Matthew. Matthew doesn't care about that, apparently. He just says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then coming back from Egypt, the threesome moved to Nazareth. Now, I said before, Matthew was very much concerned about how Jewish people are reading his gospel. He's infused this birth narrative with four quotes from the Old Testament. He says, the virgin birth was prophesied. And then he quotes Isaiah 7:14. He said that there's a prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's found in Micah 5, 2. There's another prophecy that says the Messiah would flee out of Egypt. That's Hosea 11, 1. And finally, that there would be this massacre of innocent children. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31, 5 to support that argument. So he uses five obscure quotes about the Messiah. And then Matthew ends his birth narrative with this sentence. This is Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. And they went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Right after that, Matthew moves on and talks about John the Baptist, and we're 30 years later. Boom, just like that. But not before saying that many prophets said that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Here's the weird thing, and maybe the problem. Nazareth, as a city, as a location, is not once mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. It never shows up. So what the heck is Matthew talking about here? What is he referencing? I, I really don't know. Now, 
Moving on to Luke's gospel, he goes about it completely differently. His version is like the feel-good story of the month, right? He focuses on the angelic realm. So right from the get-go, he starts the narrative talking about Zachariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, who will be Jesus' cousin. And then it starts with Zachariah being a priest, and he's an old man, and he's in the temple, and suddenly, boom, an angel shows up. And the angel says, I am Gabriel. The dude who stands in front of God. After that, we have this ordeal about how John the Baptist is going to be born and who he's going to be, what he's going to accomplish. And then similarly, we have the angel appearing before Mary. After the angel appears to Mary, Mary goes and visits Elizabeth and they're like bosom buddies. You know, they're both pregnant. And Mary gives this monologue. And it's a beautiful monologue. And it's a shame. I often overlook it because, to be frank... Mary is a difficult figure for Protestants, I think, right? We've looked at what the Catholic Church has done with the Mary figure, where they've essentially made her on par with Jesus. And to us, that seems heretical. Mary is not associated as being God. She is a person like you or me. She is not the God of the universe. She doesn't have God-like traits. And it just so happens that Mary makes one big speech in all the Bible. It happens to be this speech. And so a lot of the Mariology or the Mary worship that comes out of the Catholic Church is rooted in interpretations from this passage. So for Protestants like me, it gets short shrift. But nevertheless, it's beautiful. Listen to it. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy." as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Why is that so beautiful? Think back to our definition of villain, or Chuck Klosterman's definition of villains. A villain is the person in the room who knows the most, or has the most power, but cares the least. Who is a hero? A hero is the person who knows the least, or has the least amount of power, but cares the most. Mary is saying, Mary is saying here, what God does. She says, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's taking the people that know the most but care the least off of their thrones. And then what about the heroes, the people that have the least power but care the most? Mary says, he has exalted those of humble estate. I think Mary is maybe humble bragging here, saying, I am the one of nothing. I have no repute. I am just a young, innocent girl. And yet, I am being made a hero. God is putting me into the place where I can become the hero, or at least the mother of the hero. It's fascinating and it's beautiful. And I believe that that is the heart of Luke's gospel. Luke's point is that God works in mysterious ways, yes. But what is at the core of those mysterious ways? Doing the unexpected by humbling the proud, humbling the ones you expect, the villains, and bringing up the people who should rightfully be brought up but don't have the means to be. Zechariah, who we mentioned earlier, the father of John the Baptist, also gives a monologue. Let me quote just from the end of his speech. This is Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 76. Zechariah speaking. 
and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He's talking about John the Baptist. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Hope for the weary. Those who are sitting in the shadows will be brought into the way of peace. In Luke's birth narrative of Jesus, there's no Herod. Herod's not mentioned. There's no escape into Egypt. We just have a census by Augustus Caesar that causes Mary and Joseph to travel to Bethlehem. And then, of course, and then, of course, no hotels. And then Mary's kind of forced to give birth in the stable and put her newborn child in swaddling clothes in a manger. This is Luke's story. But then, simultaneously, on this night, there's no star in the sky. By the way, in Luke's gospel, no star ever appears. But we have shepherds out, I guess, on the fields around Bethlehem. And suddenly, Gabriel appears before them and tells them, Hey guys, come check out what's happening over here in Bethlehem. And then Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 say this, And suddenly there was, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. (laughs) Oh, and I should continue. The next line is, When the angels went away from the shepherds into heaven, (laughs) it's kind of fun, but it's super cool because it contrasts this humble approach, Jesus born in a stable, and then an army of angels showing up, floating in the sky, appearing to shepherds. And again, shepherds are very humble. Compare Luke's shepherds, probably nearly penniless people, to Matthew's wise men who are giving gold over to Jesus. By the way, a thought on gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If I was writing the story of Jesus and I was trying to just make it a really good story, I would totally have the myrrh show up again once Jesus is dead. What a great throwback of once Jesus dies on the cross, they bury him, and then they bring to him the myrrh that the wise men gave him when he was born. Because myrrh, you know, is a funeral ointment. Or it's frankincense. I get those two mixed up. But anyway, that doesn't happen. Uh, I've heard theories, and I kind of like them, though there's no evidence that this is what happened, that Joseph sells the gold, frankincense, and myrrh to get to Egypt. Fun theory. Can't really back it up. Moving on from the night of... Jesus' birth, where there are shepherds, not necessarily animals, but shepherds come and visit Jesus. If we move on from that in Luke's narrative, we see that he doesn't just bump ahead to Jesus as a grown man. There's a couple more interesting incidents, or specifically one more incident with two more characters. Joseph and Mary take the baby Jesus to Jerusalem, to the temple, to be presented. To be presented. This is tricky because... When did this happen? You know, if they had to flee Bethlehem to go to Egypt, when was their time to go to Jerusalem? We don't know. Luke doesn't care. He's focused on telling the story of more outsiders, people that were desperate for a savior. So the three go to Jerusalem, and there's this old man, Simeon. And Simeon was a good man. And all his days, he prayed earnestly, I'm sure, for a savior, for good things to happen for Israel. And God spoke to him at some point, maybe when he was praying. And God, in his love, let Simeon know that the next part of the story was about to happen. And he loved Simeon enough to say, Listen, dude, before you die, you'll meet the Messiah. 
With this hope, Simeon endured and endured and endured until he spots Jesus and surely the Holy Spirit spoke to him because Luke 2.29 relates what he says. Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And more than just Simeon, there's another old woman, old, old woman named Anna. And Anna was a good woman. Here's what Luke says about Anna. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phenuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay, those details are heartbreaking, right? So women were often married at a very, very young age during that time period. So let's say Anna probably was married when she was 14. So she was married for seven years until she was 21. From the age of 21 until she was 84, so 63 years she was just a widow. And it was tough to be a widow in the ancient world. Tough, tough, tough. And she spent all her days in the temple praying, fasting, night and day, it says, waiting for something good to happen in Israel, waiting for redemption. And then God, in his infinite mercy and grace, has compassion on Anna by letting her see the face of God. This is Luke's gospel. It's different than Matthew's. It really is. But what's our takeaway? Question 50 of 365 Honest Questions is what happened at the nativity? A child was born, and a bunch of people were made happy because of it. A few people were made angry. It's uh, the season for Star Wars, right? So I'm not a big Star Wars guru. I enjoy the films fine, but they're not entrenched in my soul, as they seem to be with a great many people in this world. But I was thinking about it, and I think that Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is something like... The announcement, what was it, two years ago, that they were making Star Wars Episode 7, right? Because here's the truth of the matter. Jesus is born, and he can't do anything. He's not saving anyone yet. But the pain of desperation, the yearning, that desperation is being broken on Christmas Day. So you watched Episode 3 of Star Wars, and for what, eight years you've been just hoping yearning, desperate for a new Star Wars movie to come out. And George Lucas has said he's not really interested in directing anymore, so you don't see light at the end of the tunnel. But then all of a sudden Disney buys the Star Wars franchise. And then boom, J.J. Abrams is attached to direct. There's a script in play. They're casting actors. Your hope is renewed and refreshed. Uh, Another analogy is marriage, right? So full disclosure here, I endured... I was a virgin until my wedding day. So the pain of not being married as a puberty-ridden boy was very strong for very many years. And I waited in desperation often. I looked down at the parts God gave me and I sighed. (laughs) But then on, on the day of marriage, it's not as if the work's done. It's that the story's beginning. You know, my marriage is still going. I'm still enjoying that story unfolding. It's wonderful, but it's not over. It doesn't have a sense of completion yet, uh, but my desperation was broken that wedding day. Your desperation for hoping for Star Wars was broken two years ago. 
Um, and you'll see the fruits of that, the accomplishment of that, the accomplishment of the cross, let's say, on December 18th when you sit down and watch the new Star Wars movie. I don't know if this analogy is making sense to you, but my sense this Christmas season is that I've always loved Advent because I've felt that desperation. And then Christmas is, you know, good because it's it's over. The wait is over. But now I feel like, n- not, not really. It's just the breaking of the desperation and the time of hopeful expectation, excited, e- excited waiting. Our hope went from being completely anomalous, completely, I don't know, in the void. Like we had nothing specifically to put our trust in. And as Jesus is born now, now we know the exact form of our hope. Now it's there. John in his gospel is very aware of this. And I think if we read his preamble, the beginning of his gospel, with Jesus inserted to all the pronouns, because he's trying to be vague in the opening of his gospel, we can see his version of the birth narrative. So this is John 1, 1 through 17, inserting the name of Jesus whenever the word, word, (laughs) is used. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through this light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through Jesus, yet the world did not know Jesus. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in Jesus' name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen Jesus' glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from Jesus' fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. See, the miracle here is that our desperation being broken now, now our hope being tangible, that hope looks just like us. That hope is just a baby, but that baby resembles us. Just imagine being Simeon or Anna, being old and waiting for these promises to be fulfilled. Waiting, yearning, desperate, slowly dying inside because you're not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And then suddenly, here it is. God has come, but he has done the impossible. The God who has made everything, created all things, knows all things, has somehow managed to consider himself nothing and has become somehow the hero of the story instead of the villain. At the nativity, God becomes the person in the room who cares the most but knows the least. Matthew shows us this as he also shows us Satan, Herod, and the Romans who know the most and care the least. Merry Christmas. This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey.